Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, November 15th, 2021. I am John Pothortz, the editor of Commentary. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. So the talk of the punditocracy is this horrible for Joe Biden, Washington Post, ABC News poll according to which Republicans, if the election were held today, Republicans would have a 10-point advantage uh, on the question of who should control Congress or would you vote for a Republican or a Democrat in your district. Uh, This 10-point margin in favor of the Republicans is the largest uh, in recorded history, apparently. Um, And uh, just to give you uh, uh, comparison points, In 1994, when Republicans took the House by 52 seats, the margin was Republicans plus six. In 2010, when they won 63, the margin was Republicans plus seven. Uh, Analysts say that should should this number hold till the election, we're talking about a 60-seat shift in the House toward Republicans and a five or six-seat shift toward Republicans in the Senate Armageddon for Democrats. So let's try to unpack what on earth is going on here. So Noah, start unpacking. Uh, okay. <laughs> sort of a broad, broad opening there. All right. I'll, um, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a topic as, uh, please. um, as they said on coffee talk, um, I'll give you a topic. Uh, the, uh, democratic competency argument is neither an argument nor displays competency. <laughs> Discuss. Discuss. <laughs> um, that just, that's a reference that dates all of us, unfortunately. Um, well, so who do you the, think listens that we're lucky if people enough. listen to this podcast, don't find that reference too contemporary. <laughs> so please go on. So, um, in the effort to. Uh, compartmentalize the existential threat that is looming for Democrats. The Washington Post conducted a series of interviews with Democratic operatives, people close to Joe Biden, all the you know unnamed sources, but nevertheless, folks in the know. And all of them uh, seem, seem to believe that these problems are sort of entropic. They've sort of been imposed on them by forces outside their control. And fortunately, they will be mitigated by forces beyond their control. And Democrats really don't have to do much of anything at all to address them. Um, The quote that's making the biggest rounds is the following quote, by next year's elections, top Democrats say that the national environment will look dramatically different. They project confidence that the coronavirus pandemic will fade, allowing Americans to fully return to their normal lives. And that supply chain bottlenecks and inflation will also ease, allowing the economy to improve. That's a sunny optimistic outlook. Um, and it absolves you of any responsibility for the conditions that you're dealing with. So I can understand why it's attractive, but it's one we've heard before, um, similarly buttressed by, by similar assumptions and similar data. When Joe Biden entered office uh, in the first, oh, the first day of the month of February in 2021, the Congressional Budget Office put out a report that said, look, we're, everything's going to go back to normal pretty soon. The vaccines are doing their work. All the, the economy is opening up and we anticipate that the that GDP will return to a pre-pandemic uh, high uh, by middle of this year, and it'll exceed that by 2025. And that didn't happen in part because that CBO analysis 
uh, didn't assume that we would pass $1.9 trillion worth of new coronavirus emergency spending, which we did the following month. It didn't anticipate that there would be significant inflationary pressures as associated with that. It didn't anticipate the Delta variant, nor did it anticipate the reaction to the Delta variant, which was to forced health, public health officials to attack this paradigmatic notion that was being retailed in the summer of this year, that this was a pandemic of the unvaccinated. That was a phrase you heard a lot from Joe Biden folks. It was a phrase that you heard today, still heard today from people who want to get past the pandemic. Um, but it allowed the public health officials to say this was callous. It was an attack on people who have underlying conditions. It was negligent of the threat posed by breakthrough infections. And it was alienating the unvaccinated and forcing them to be even more recalcitrant in their uh, refusal to get vaccinated. So all these problems are coming from inside the, the house, as it were. Uh, and Democrats refuse to acknowledge them. So they're just really telling themselves that they don't exist. And if they do exist, it's all going to go away by next year. So don't worry about it. Yeah. Can I that on the inflation issue in particular, I rem remember the word transitory, which the Biden administration was using. First, they pretended it wasn't happening. Then it's like, well, we'll acknowledge it, but we're only going to acknowledge it to the extent that it's transitory. And now it's just sheer on gaslighting going on, at least among their sort of media aiders and abettors. But even the use of the word transitory, this is not how people talk to each other about prices rising. They go, oh, my God, that steak is now 10 bucks more than it was a month ago. That's literally how people talk about the the experience of, of inflation, which Americans are having, they are even their messaging strategy is coming from a sort of strange, abstract place where they're hedging their bets and assuming that people will still trust them. And honestly, both after the Afghanistan debacle, after the fact that Biden ran on, I'm going to shut down COVID, not the country, he has not kept or fulfilled his promises to either be candid and, and, and truthful with the American people or to handle these issues. And the idea that that these problems will solve themselves. Um, and, and so all the bad stuff will go away and we'll just be left with the good stuff is also preposterous. This, this assumes that there are no future crises, which is not only ridiculous, but really misunderstands the times we live in. You know, I mean, these are sort of deeply, this is a deeply unstable little period we have going on here and anything could happen and things are happening. We don't know what, what Vladimir Putin is up to. We certainly don't know what, what, what China is going to do in re regard to Taiwan. Um, it is just crazy to think if we just sit back and let nature take its course, we will be in a better place. And uh, the Biden administration itself has behaved at times as though it understands or fears not responding to things. Look what happened on Friday when the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals uh, issued an opinion uh, supporting its decision to stay the OSHA rules that said that uh, any company with 100 employees or more uh, had to fire anybody who was not vaccinated or had to had to impose vaccine mandate rules or testing rules or something like that. Um, they say in the course of this really astonishingly strong opinion that uh, this is uh, unconstitutional, extra constitutional, that it relies on a power, an emergency power that, as Noah has said repeatedly on this podcast, it says it has, but then is imposing the emergency measures months after it claims the emergency justifies the measures. Therefore, 
it's by definition not the emergency that they say it is. And in any case, even if it were the emergency that they say it is, they still don't have the right under the under probably don't have the right under the Constitution to be doing what they're doing. I bring this up only to say that in September, they thought that they had such a political crisis on their hands that they needed to exercise a, you know, an extra constitutional measure that they had said three or four weeks earlier, they did not have the power. The Biden people said they could not do this. There could be no vaccine mandates throughout the year 2021. They said there will be and there can be no vaccine mandates. And then looking at the Delta variant and looking at the uh, poll data, I think that said that, you know, people like it when it looks like Biden's strong on COVID. They just exercised this, you know, Hail Mary option, and they are now getting slapped down. So now that they've been slapped down, now that the Virginia election has come to naught, now, and, and they almost lost New Jersey and all of that, now that all of that has happened, they're defaulting to, well, you know what, we just won't do anything, and then maybe things will get better and everything will be fine. Uh, which is um, it would be lovely if they were saying we won't do anything and everything will be fine. They're still full speed ahead with their agenda and now convincing themselves that their agenda is, is actually going to improve all these conditions that didn't exist when the agenda was initially formulated. They're just retrofitting a rationale onto a pre-existing legislative agenda. Well, well, I should say it is not the Biden White House that is saying we'll just wait and then everything will get better. I mean, this is, you know, democratic. This is an opinion in the air and it is whistling past the graveyard because in one sense, they are in the grips of a fiendish political crisis for them, long burning. Inflation is not resolvable in the short term, right? Inflation is a very simple matter. It is too much money chasing too few goods. And until there are way more goods, and until those goods can get delivered in good time to the places they need to go, and until there are enough goods that prices no longer increase because there is so much competition to buy the goods that are available, nothing is going to change. In fact, all relevant indications are that things will get worse because there will be there is way more money chasing goods. And you know, we have if you look at these numbers, so uh, inflation's at 6.2%, and wages have increased in this country more than 4%. That's good that wages have increased more than 4%. But of course, if goods cost 6% more, everybody is not only in deficit, but has sufficient new resources to chase those goods even more. In other words, they're not going to say, okay, I'll just wait for a year to buy a TV they need a TV or they want a TV or they need a new car or something like that. They feel flush and they'll pay the premium, which then supports the inflation. It is a fiendish circle and it is not politically resolvable, except you could stop with the Build Back Better bill and stop saying, you know what? As Noah just said, we pumped $2 trillion in the economy earlier in the year. Then we pumped we're now pumping going to Trump pump another trillion in the economy with the infrastructure bill, pumping another two trillion in with the Build Back Better bill. That would be stupid. Or Why would that be dumb at a time of incredibly rising inflation at a rate that we haven't seen in close to half a century? Maybe we shouldn't be putting f flooding the market with all of this money 
to be spent by government that will then compete with private sector money and make inflation go up. Or but, what we yeah. said last week and got a lot of pushback on from a lot of people who don't want to accept the accumulated wisdom of generations of economics, as far as I understand it, that tightening the money supply is what'll do it, along with a whole lot of pain. Right. Well, here's the thing. So if if what you have, if what you have is an in is inflate is inflation that is the result of too much money chasing too few goods. You don't necessarily have it as a result of a money supply problem. I mean, what you have is a labor shortage. You have a labor shortage that is so significant that we still have, I think it's 9 million open jobs in the United States. 4 million people quit their jobs and move to other jobs in September, which is the sign of health. There are still 9 million jobs open, which again is both bad because it means that the stuff that those people do, like delivering goods from ports, isn't happening fast enough. And it also means that the, a, a labor market being, you know, being incredibly tight is good for workers because it means there's more competition for them and more competition for their labor and their and their wages will go up. But it isn't like that doesn't have an inflationary effect because if to make the same widget, your labor costs go up 20%, you then have to pass on the labor cost increase in the form of an increase per widget and then the people who buy the widgets have to pay the increased cost. And then what they put the widget in becomes more expensive. And then the, the thing that they make for the, lar- for the car, everything becomes more expensive. And that's how inflation works. And that's why it isn't solvable in a couple of months or in six months. And why it isn't transitory. It wasn't transitory. There is no such thing as transitory inflation. No one has ever seen transitory, real transitory inflation. That's what's interesting about the, oh, no, 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 it's all transitory because, of course, nothing's, we're in, we're in this weird position. We closed the economy, the world economy down, and now we have to start it back up. And obviously, there are going to be hitches in the giddle, you know, in our get along here as we go. But inflation of all the things on earth is by definition almost impossibly not transitory simply because it has all these ancillary consequences down the road. And until you solve the problem at the source, those ancillary problems are going to continue down the road. And that's a hard thing to slow down or reverse without a recession. And I don't mean a Fed-induced recession. I mean a thing where the supply then starts to wildly outstrip demand And that's one of the things that happens when you go into recession, which is that people are making things and no one's buying them. Well, and to add insult to the injury of people's experience of inflation, which is real, uh, Biden's messaging has been off. But so have so is the media, which tends to carry water for, for Democratic policy ideas. We've been told over and over again, it's either it's in your imagination or, oh, it's not really going to affect you. And uh, it's insulting. It gets to the point now where the messaging becomes insulting to people who go to the grocery store every week and purchase their own groceries, not to the elite who can actually absorb some some price increases for their daily lives, but to people who already live paycheck to paycheck or who live close enough to paycheck to paycheck that it's a noticeable cost difference when they have to fill up their their tank of gas. So that kind of elite sort of uh, disdain for the problems of everyday Americans 
I hear a lot of that in the mainstream media right now on the side of the people who claim to speak for everyday Americans and, and the people to whom Biden appealed as presidential candidate that he was going to speak for. Huh. OK, so let's 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 uh, let me take a step back and talk to you about our friends at the Acton Institute, um, one of our uh, happier new um, new additions to the podcast lineup uh, and their podcast Acton Unwind, a weekly roundtable discussion tackling current events from the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty, a weekly audio public square where news, politics, religion, and culture meet for an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. Every Monday, there's a new podcast hosted by Eric Cohn and Acton Institute experts join him, including Dr. Samuel Gregg, Reverend Robert Sirico, Dr. Stephen Barrows, and they explain the news of the week through the Acton Institute's unique perspective that connects good intentions with sound economics as we work to promote a society that is secure, free, and virtuous, one characterized by individual liberty, sustained by religious principles. To subscribe to Acton Unwind, visit acton.org slash commentary or search Acton Unwind on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever fine podcasts are available. That's acton.org slash commentary to subscribe. Also interested in the interplay of liberty and free enterprise, economics, and virtue, our friend David Bonson's new book, There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths. You've heard me talk about David before. He runs the Bonson Group, a multi-billion dollar financial services and management business that puts out those two great newsletters, the DC Today, which gives you a daily sense of what happened in the markets, and DividendCafe.com, where you get a weekly view uh, from 30,000 feet of the macroeconomic pressures uh, on our economy and on our lives. Uh, and uh, There's No Free Lunch is a daily devotional uh, modeled on the daily devotionals that gives you a page a day, 250 different economic principles uh, explained with quotes from leading philosophers, great thinkers, great texts um, that connect free enterprise and liberty to the deepest traditions of Western faith. So that's There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths by our friend David Bonson. Get it at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever you get your books, and it's a great stocking stuffer also. So Biden in trouble. Gee, that's so sad. I'm so, so sorry for him. Um, I say this in, the, in this ironic mode only to say that um, I continue to notice how, on the one hand, uh, the news is absolutely horrible for Democrats, and on the other, uh, Democrats keep pretending that if they if they just continue doing what they're doing, everything will be fine. And I can't quite fathom why it is that they can't sort of take um, elementary political facts and accept them. Meaning, um, when you have ten months of uh, you know ten months of uh, evidence uh, to suggest that what you're doing isn't working. Maybe you shift gears to save yourselves and save your party and save what, what remnant of your ideological uh, commitment to a uh, vision of America 
can be uh, implemented. Instead, as we keep saying, they seem to be de determined to double down on everything that has cost them the support of the American people thus far and will lead them down a road to, you know, not, not to perdition, but like a road to deep minority status heading into not only 2024, but into the next 12 years. And why, why can't they shift gears? Well, I think part of this has to do with the fact that there is a strong contingent among Democrats who, and I, and I believe them, I think they're very sincere about this. They are still first and foremost preoccupied with Trump, uh, the rise of Trump, the looming threat of Trump, the return of uh, Trump's fascist America. And what their main concern is, is getting the rest of America to see and feel and believe what they fear about what Republicans are up to. They, all these other problems are, are, are incidental. They yeah, may have gone too far, they may not have gone too far, but that, what, what does that matter? Don't you see that Trump is poised to, 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 deal, to deal the body blow to our democracy, once again, with, with Republicans, uh, you know, uh, serving him in this purpose. Yeah, that I, I actually, I, I think it's such an important point. And I have a lot of friends who fit this description to a T, very thoughtful liberals, you know, sort of definitely partisan Democrats, but thoughtful people who, who at, at every election, we have interesting debates that the extension of existential risks to everything about politics now is what's on their mind. They will say to me with a straight face, democracy is over because Republicans will never allow a Democratic president to be certified if they win again, if they control the House. Like they, they say crazy stuff. And when I try to talk them down, they're like, well, every single Republican is going to have to disavow January 6th, disavow every Republican who didn't disavow January 6th and disavow Trump. Otherwise, our democracy is dead. And, and that is the line they draw in the sand. And that's not not ever going to be reached in our politics, nor should it be. So I, they are continuing to invoke this. But as we saw in Virginia, voters aren't necessarily with them there. Like they kind of vaguely still dislike Trump. But if given other options, they'll go for those. And that's what happened with Youngkin and McAuliffe made his whole campaign about Trump. So I, I think that it's a political strategy that's going to lose for the Democrats, but they firmly believe it. It's a, it's a point of faith for them at this right now. Look, I, I think they're doing Trump a favor, um, uh, though I, I, they genuinely don't mean to. But um, uh, historically, Democrats, uh, and when I mean historically, I mean really since the Reagan administration, uh, have been committed to this idea that when Republicans prosper with the electorate, they are doing so because a cabal of billionaires uh, activates idiot populists uh, with, you know, with uh, seductive uh, hate messaging to get them to do their will. And that we first saw this with the Democratic freakout over the moral majority, uh, really in the 1980, uh, 1981 period. Um, and by elevating the moral majority, Jerry Falwell's kind of proto-activist evangelical Christian group, that uh, grouping or sort of uh, umbrella group, as the evangelicals moved from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party in the late 1970s, as they made them the boogeyman for the horrors of Reaganism, 
Um, they also gave the moral majority a central position in American life. I'm not sure that it would have filled otherwise. They elevated it. They made the moral majority the only story in town. And this, this has continued over time. Uh, some of the talk about the Tea Party on the part of the, the left, which is that it was somehow being you know, activated by the Kochs who were looking to control things and did and all that. And the Tea Party could then use this or elements of the Tea Party could use this to say, you see, we're scaring the crap out of them. Like we are, we are the vanguard because they know, they know we're coming for them. Give us money, be, you know, support us because we own the libs. And right now, Trump is somebody who can really use a democratic focus on him as the, you know, as the guiding evil of our time to continue to hold his sway with a wide swath of conservatives who might otherwise look at it and say, well, he's the past. And he's also focused on the past. He's focused on what happened to him in 2020. And we're dealing with all this stuff in the present and we need to move on into the future. Well, if the Democrats are going to spend the next or a significant number of Democrats on the Hill and everything are going to spend the next couple of years talking about January 6th, then they're just Trump in democratic clothing. So Trump's talking about January 6th and they're talking about January 6th. Trump's talking about the stolen election and they're talking about the stolen election. So they are they are maneuvering the country into relitigating the 2020 election in 2024 on their part as opposed to saying Trump is irrelevant, Trump is over because they I think you're right, you guys are right that it's it's totally ingenuous and they mean it and they're terrified and Ann Applebaum is terrified that you know authoritarianism is coming to America and so she wants everybody to focus on this and she then convinces and they convince themselves that this is a proper it's not that it's not a proper focus for the Congress to study what happened in an assault on the Capitol building and try to figure out its roots and its causes and what was going on when nobody really intervened from the executive branch and to, to stop things from going on. But the, the media focus and the political focus on this matter is only helpful to Trump. Unless yeah, I, he is I don't think Joe and Biden convicted. and his Democratic allies share that sincerity. I do think that the average well-meaning liberal to progressive on the left is genuinely terrified of the, of the threat that Donald Trump and his movement represents. But that's not how you would behave if you're Joe Biden up on a stage for Terry McAuliffe in the last week of the election, demanding that Donald Trump in, intervene in the election, come down to Virginia, literally come to Virginia, talk about the election, inject himself into the election, because they knew that's the only thing that would energize Democratic voters to the to the point that they might actually save that election and they made very unenthusiastic, unenthusiastic average de classically democratic voters in Virginia that cycle. And they knew that Donald Trump would rescue them from that. And that's the calculation that they're going to make in 2022 as well, especially if what they're trying to sell isn't selling, then what they need is a negative message. And the negative message is gonna be Donald Trump is, you know, is still a very looming threat, which may or may not be true, but, the only answer to that looming threat is to vote against Republicans broadly, and many of them will play into that. Many Republican candidates on the on the, the ticket in 2022 will be easily pilloried as Trump allies, but not all of them. But that message will be applied to all of them uniformly as a member of this of the president's former president's party. Um, so, yeah, in that sense, they're both summoning 
Donald Trump back into existence with with some very Machiavellian calculations behind it. I mean, I'm not sure they're that Machiavellian and it didn't work in Virginia. You may say that it didn't work in Virginia because Trump didn't didn't make a big show in Virginia, but we don't know that that's true. Problem is, we can't run. We can't run to, you know, we need a race in which Yunkin, in which Trump is a big player and a race in which Trump is not a big player. Trump is not on the ballot. Well, Trump will not be on the ballot in 2022. After Joe Biden made that appeal, Donald Trump's office, whatever that is, did issue a statement from the president saying he's coming down. He's on the way down. And apparently he was in touch with some local MAGA style radio hosts there to host a, a potential Donald Trump visit. All we can say is that he was talked out of that. Right. By some very prudent. But you're missing around him. I look the problem in Virginia, the problem as a political strategy for 2022, not 2024, is that it is a bank shot to say, don't vote for this guy because he supports this other guy. That is a bank shot. And I made this point in a, in a, in a piece I wrote for The New York Post after the Virginia elections in pool. If you're going to make a shot, you don't want to have to make a bank shot. That's a trick shot. That's a shot that's hard to make. If you have a pool ball and a cue and you can hit the ball dead on and sail it into the pocket, that's what you want. If you are forced into a bank shot where you're running against somebody who is not even present, you have to go at it from the side. You are doing that in desperation because you don't have another play. Now, if they if Republicans all over the country nominate lunatics who think that Hillary Clinton is drinking children's adrenochrome to live forever, then those candidates will be easily exploitable by Democrats, particularly in the suburbs, when they say you can't vote for these these people, they're crazy. But saying you can't vote for these people because Trump likes them, I really don't think is going to work. Well, and in Virginia, the other thing to remember is that the concerns of the people of Virginia and the ones that they had been expressing pretty loudly over the last you know, couple of years were heard by the Yunkin campaign and addressed head on. It was about schools. It was about the shutdowns, the covid stuff, um, you know, critical race theory stuff. That was what was in the air. And he engaged it directly. McAuliffe nationalized that election and wanted to talk only about Trump. And I think Democrats make a huge error if they go back to their constituents in these local districts where inflation is rising and people are concerned. And in in blue states in particular, there's still sort of lockdown like restrictions in place and their kids are wearing masks nine hours a day. And they go back and they say, you have to vote for me or else, you know, we'll have January 6th every week because the Republicans will control the House. And the message of the DCCC DCCC, yes, is uh, that they're putting out starting this week is just that it's these people are fascists. They want to end democracy as we know it. If you give them power in Congress, it will be January 6th all the time. That's their message. It's fear. Fear sells. But I don't think it's going to sell in this political climate to the independent voters that those Democrats, many of them will need. Look, if we look ahead to 2024, if Trump is on the ballot, in 2024, then they can run against Trump on the ballot. He will be the issue or he will be one of the two issues. But if he's not on the ballot, it's very hard to make him the subject of the race, even if he endorses the person, by the way. I mean, again, you're asking people to make a statement about something else as opposed to a vote that they have to cast between one guy and another guy. And if, as in the Senate races in 2010 and 2012, Republicans nominate lunatics who say things like rape, you know, rape can't produce a baby, 
or, you know, whatever, you know, I'm not a witch or whatever all these people, you know, whatever all these people said that got, you know, Delaware and Missouri and um, Indiana and Nevada to stay or move into Democratic hands in the Senate because of horrible candidate selection. That may happen in 2022. Uh, it's guaranteed to happen. In fact, in environments cases. environments that are this lopsidedly in favor of one politician or the other, which are which can't happen unless one side is very unenthusiastic about their current set of representatives, then you absolutely will get primary races that are weird in which, you know, the most the craziest sounding person makes it into into the nomination and glides into into office or in, you know, very highly populated urban areas where, you know, the longtime Democratic official isn't, for example, supposed to be uh, vulnerable. And then all of a sudden, 15,000 people turn out and 10,000 of them don't support the incumbent. That's how you get an Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. You only get those in really lopsided environments that favor one party over the other. So there will be a few that aren't generic Republicans on this ballot. But having said that, the races that are going to flip the House to the Republicans are almost by definition races in which Democrats hold the seats, right? I mean, there are 25 or 30 seats, you know, that Trump won that, that you know, in 2020 that, that Democrats held or something like that. You know, the Republicans won 15 seats back uh, after, after 2018's 40-seat loss. And the first thing you're going to look at is the 25 seats that remain that Republicans held that they lost in 2018. So those are by definition, yes, you could have a lunatic win the Republican primary in those places and make getting those seats much more possible. Um, But it's less likely that that's the case in a place where Republicans have a real shot at winning because, uh, you know, they they will turn out and there will be big primary turnout. And it's not going to be that, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene is going to represent a district in, you know, suburban Cleveland or, you know, suburban Detroit or something like that. It will be somebody who is much more, I think, I mean, we don't know. We'll see. But I'm just saying uh, the circumstances are that if what they think they can do is make everybody, every Republican into a generic Trump and that this is going to kill Republican chances in 2022, well, I have one major issue I got to raise with you, which is that in Iowa, the, the Des Moines Register did a poll asking people if the election were held today, would they vote for Trump or would they vote for Biden? And Trump won by 10 points. Now, Trump won Iowa by eight points, I think, in the last election. But um, famous poll that scared everybody. Um, remember <laughs> the, the Seltzer poll. But um, but the fact that he his numbers are, you know, that's not. Uh, urban, big suburban center or something, but there are some areas like that. And, you know, don't think that the uh, the voting public, some of whom, you know, moderates and independents who voted for, you know, voted for Trump uh, are now in the Democrats' pocket simply because you say, oh, Trump, you know, because they switched away from Trump. Because they switched away from Trump because they don't really have an allegiance to the Republican Party. But that doesn't mean that they have an allegiance to the Democratic Party. Well, because as well, and nothing that the Democrats are doing now are emphasizing any kind of important contrast. Right. I mean, all all they're doing is is pointing at the other side. 
um, they're not giving any sort of reason wh why uh, one would prefer to them. Um, yeah. you know, to the contrary, they're, they're, they're ignoring uh, regular Americans' concerns and, and pushing forward with this agenda that, that the American public has already said repeatedly they don't want. It's, all, it's also if you if the media coverage has been fascinating to me because we keep disappointing Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Do you realize this? Like all these failures of the American people, we are disappointing our leaders because we're not doing the things that they tell us we should do that voters have very clearly said we don't want to do that and we don't have to do that. And by the way, some of the things you're making us do are unconstitutional and we will challenge them in court. So but this idea that that and we've had a few stories come out over the weekend that were harshly critical of Kamala Harris and how she runs the, the Veep's office, uh, one of whom was from a CNN reporter who's basically the go to source for the Biden administration's leaks from the executive office. So there's a whole lot of conspiracy theorizing about are they starting to kind of pile on Kamala and are they looking for someone to throw under the bus if things go really badly in the midterms? I don't know what what the uh, the Machiavellian uh, strategy would be there, but it's very clear that they're not having that moment that they need to have the reckoning that many of their moderates have been kind of shouting at them to have, you know, for years. OK, I want to talk some more about why it's going to be hard for them to take credit when things go well next year. But before I do that, I want to talk to you about Boland Brand sheets. Um, because, you know, holidays, families, people spend a third of their lives in bed. One of the nicest things you can do uh, for a present is to help people uh, with the comfort that they need so desperately to sleep well at night. And that's why pure organic cotton sheets from Bowling Branch make a truly special gift. These are the highest quality sheets. They make them by doing the things the right way not the easy way i i'm thought of as being a good gift giver but i uh, by, by my friends and family um but i i've never really thought about this notion of giving people stuff to make them more comfortable it's more like giving to people stuff that they'll think is fun but the enduring quality of of providing people with soft, luxurious, luxuriant things that they might not think to buy for themselves. That that I think is pretty alluring. And Bolin Branch doesn't disappoint. The high quality sheets, blankets, pillows, and throws, and their holiday holiday packaging makes your gift look and feel special. Noah, you have the Bolin Branch sheets. You've told us about them. They're pewter. They fit your mattress well. What do you think about gift about them as a gift? Uh, it's a, a very good idea for a gift, in fact. And I have talked about all the the wonderfulness of the product, the high thread count, the, the color. As I said, I got Peter, which is this lovely, rich gray. And I really like it. My whole house is covered in this color. And that they actually fit on a king-size mattress. But the packaging is something that we haven't talked about. And it's actually really nice, too. It came in a very nice uh, box. And it was so compressed to the point that my wife and I both thought that we had gotten the wrong the wrong size. Because it was much too small. And the, the packaging was much too compact and, and, you know, very well done. It looked like a very professional gift option for somebody who had like a, a tiny bed, like a twin bed. But no, so it was a king size bed packaging. So, yes, you'll get when you order these sheets, you will get them, not just the some of the highest quality sheets, but some of the best looking sheets and some of the nicest packaging. 
So treat yourself and your loved ones to the new standard in bedding from Bowling Branch. Their gifts come wrapped and ready in their special holiday packaging. Order by December 19th for guaranteed delivery by Christmas and get 20% off your order from now until the 17th of November. That's Wednesday. This is Monday. So do it now. Promo code commentary at bowlandbranch.com for 20% off your order. That's B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com. Promo code commentary. See site for details exclusions may apply um so i can't remember what i was gonna say <laughs> should we talk about retirements and announcements because there have been a few oh retirements morning. and announcements so um here's my so patrick Leahy, democrat of vermont is retiring uh uh he is retiring this is his eighth term so let's do the math he is in his eighth term looking for his ninth. That means that when he retires, he will have been in the Senate for 48 years. I am 60 years old. That means he went into the Senate when I was 12. Uh, Noah wasn't born yet. Christine, I think, may, may have been may, around your toddlerhood. Uh, Abe was a baby, and uh, I was 12. And um, ever since I came to political consciousness, I've always thought of Pat Leahy as the guy in public life who, when you heard him speak, you wish somebody had given him a Kleenex before he spoke because he needs to blow his nose. The man has sounded for 48 years like he needed to blow his nose. And I hope that in his retirement, he will have a lot of Kleenex because it's really annoying to listen to Pat Leahy speak because he needs to blow his nose. I'm not even talking politics now. I mean, I don't like his politics. And, you know, he, he was bad after 9-11 in various ways. But that's that that's that's my takeaway from the Pat Leahy retirement. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that the senator from one of the most Democratic states in, in America retiring after half a century in office, who's best known for a cameo in a superhero movie, is indicative of the the environment. The retirement of uh, Sherry Bustos is, however, um, she was she announced that she's getting out after this term. She's a famous moderate within the Democratic caucus. She was the chairman of the DCCC uh, Congressional Campaign Committee in 2018, one of the most successful, therefore, uh, Democratic uh, operatives of, of that campaign committee in a very good year for Democrats. And what she's getting out is both indicative of the environment and what the Democratic caucus is going to look like in 2023. Um, it's going to be far more insular and, and more radical, which is to be expected. That's sort of what happens when you enter the minority. Um, but we're seeing a, a pronounced movement in the caucus uh, towards a particular ideological inclination towards radical progressivism. And that's only going to intensify. Uh, Christine, oh, I mean who, el who else is uh, who else is coming? Uh, well, Beto O'Rourke has just announced his plan to run for governor of Texas and and came right out of the right out of the gate saying he's not going to back away from his pledge to take everybody's assault weapons. This was his this was he's been repeatedly mocked for some of the like, yes, we are coming for your guns. Uh, and it and it was extremely detrimental to his previous Senate race. But, yeah, he's he's coming out and he's here to stop those guns blazing. So it'll be as always when it comes to Beto, whose whose sense of himself and his cool factor is um, his his cool reach exceeds his grasp. And we will be, I'm sure, watching cringe inducing Instagram live feeds of his thoughts for the next year and a half. So, you know, gird yourself, Texans, it's coming. But what is that except a play for out of state money? 
I mean, you, you can oh, it's win, totally what it is. win yeah. the primary yeah. at the expense of your electoral prospects in the state, which suggests that you're not really interested in winning the election. Right. I mean, if you're if you're if you're Beto O'Rourke now, you have all the evidence in the world to suggest that you're not a palatable alternative to Republicans in Texas. So maybe just embrace that. But then what else is this? But except a, a play for small dollar cash or even large dollar cash from from liberal investors and in way outside of Texas. Well, I think he perhaps he sees a new career path in the mold of a Stacey Abrams, where you you lose an election, but you become a hero to your own party side and and cash in by. You but know, that's hysterical. But he already had that. He, he did already, that. That already <laughs> happened <Right>. twice. <laughs> no, hey, it so it ain't broke, Noah. <laughs> no, it happened once. And he, then he ran for president and he had literally no case to make. And I guess maybe he that's he he gen, he he got a lot of of donor cash. Yeah, but I'm just saying he didn't even I don't think he did. He make it to the primaries. I think he dropped out before the primaries, Beto. So, I mean, there's no uh, it's genuinely baffling. It would be like somebody going into, you know, New York or California or something and saying, I am not going to back away from my position that, you know, abortion is murder. Uh, even in the cases of rape and incest and that, you know, uh, and that uh, p- people should be, you know, should be convicted of manslaughter if they if they participate in abortions. Uh, like and they're the leading candidate to be the Republican nominee in the state. Uh, that's weird. Like, it's just a weird place to be in. You know what you need if you're a Democrat running in Texas is to be like. I like hunting as much as the next guy. And I like this and I like that. But, you know, Ted Cruz, he's uh, whatever. Abbott is out there like just trying to pick fights with uh, Joe Biden to make you guys all happy. And what we need is something that focuses on what Texas needs and stuff like that. Not fighting the culture war from the left in a state uh, that, you know, where Hispanics are moving rapidly to the right. Like it just doesn't make any sense, Um, except that he wants to you know, well, he wants a show on MSNBC or something like that, which he's not going to get because he is the wrong color, I believe. But anyway, so that's Beto. And uh, uh, I guess we're going to have to listen to his nonsense now for a year because uh, t- Twitter loves him. Imagine his border policy. It's just I'm sorry, but it's just going to be. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like, what is he like doing this to do Governor Abbott a favor? I mean, seriously, you know, uh, that is obviously a state that was giving indications of going purple, but you don't take an extremist left. You don't take someone who's taking extreme leftist positions like mandatory gun buybacks uh, and and run him, uh, you know, run him against somebody in a circumstance where he needs to be able to fill a position in the middle. You know, Republican registration advantage in Texas is like a million voters or something like that over Democrats, like it's a crazy large number, sort of like New Jersey. Now, you know, Cruz only lost by three uh, and, you know, uh, Trump didn't win by that large a margin. I mean, it is a state that is more ideologically diverse than it has been for the last, for the previous 20 years, but Beto is not the guy to Might exploit he not, that. Just, just recalling how all about himself he was uh, during his, his last go round, might he not be thinking that this is the beginning of his journey maybe toward 2024? 
I'm God sure help he's us. thinking. I, I'm sure he's thinking nothing <laughs> but. So yeah, absolutely. Do nothing but lose. Win one congressional election, lose two statewide races, and then sell yourself to the Democratic Party as a winner. I mean, I know Trump. You know, rewrote the rules because he had never been elected before, but he also hadn't lost before. Like Beto's going to now lose the governorship, having lost a Senate race. And having lost an effort to be the president and he's going to go for a fourth loss. I mean, what is he offering? Hard to say. Uh, yeah. You know what he needs? An X chair. The man needs to relax. Stop being such a putz and sit in an X chair. Because if he sits in an X chair, his X chair can heat him up when he's cold. It can cool him down when he's hot. He can get a massage while he's working. He could enjoy the LMX massage and temperature regulation exclusively designed and made for X-Chair. And once Beto felt the customized support of X-Chair's patented dynamic variable lumbar, DVL, his back would never be happy in any other chair again. High performance, quality engineering, extreme comfort. These are all the reasons Beto would love his X-Chair. So he should take my advice. He shouldn't run for Senate for his own sake, not for any ideological reasons, and try the X chair instead for himself risk-free for 30 days. Once he realized how much better his chair could be, he would never go back. And maybe he would relax and make a different decision. So go to xchaircommentary.com now, Beto. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com, or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR for $100 off your order. X chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month, xchaircommentary.com. And I should say, xchair has no idea that I was going to make this into a spot, making fun of Beto or work. They're not responsible for it. I am. And uh, if don't be mad at them if you want to buy an xchair, but you like Beto or work. But if you like Beto or work, you're probably not listening to the show very much, is my guess. Anyway. Um, Can I set up Noah for something? Yes. So my... You know how I love to bring my Kamala gaffes to the to the uh, to the podcast. Well, she was recently asked about the situation with Russia and Ukraine and her response after the deer in headlights stare to this direct question by a member of the media was, I can't discuss classified information, which actually is really not very heartening to anyone involved in these uh, in, in answering that question. So that's your setup, Noah. <laughs> Thank you very much for that, that layup. Yeah, um, I think actually it's it's a little heartening that uh, Vice President Harris couldn't weigh in on this with any authority, in part because she's not privy to any of the information that would render uh, her analysis valid, interesting, or indicative of how the administration is pursuing this uh, ongoing and potentially very real crisis in Eastern Europe. We do, however, have some more information about what's happening over there. So the administration has been, and the West generally, has been sounding alarms over a significant troop buildup on the borders of Ukraine, including um, the Russian border and the uh, illegitimate Russian border in Crimea. The buildup in Crimea is, is increasing with some, some intelligence suggesting that a potential aggressive action in Ukraine is imminent. Um, and the administration has, the, white, the, the West generally has responded to this by doing a whole lot of talking. And what we saw from um, reporting by Jennifer Jacobs, who I think is at the Washington Post now, I'm not sure where she's at, um, but she says, you know, the U.S. is looking to sanction Russia uh, in the event of some sort of an attack on Ukrainian soil with the aim of, again, securing more territory and illegitimately annexing it into the Russian Federation, which is laughably unserious. Um, this administration's response to Russian aggression over the course of the last year has been 
two sided. One has been uh, to sanction heavily. They've sanctioned uh, Russian government officials. They've sanctioned Belarus twice. Um, one in response to this this hijacking of a plane in order to get a dissident off that plane and arrest him um, in midair. It was a very brazen act. And also in response to election fraud. Uh, in the interim, however, we have seen no real consequences imposed on Belarus as a result of that hijacking. Russia has orchestrated a, uh, a refugee crisis in Poland in which Belar refugees are streaming across the Belarusian border into Poland, destabilizing that country. And that the administration officials have said on background is a result of, of Russian efforts to manufacture that crisis. And the Biden administration went ahead and approved Nord Stream 2, which is this pipeline that circumvents uh, it's the former Soviet states and the former Soviet Union in Europe and gets gas right from Russia into Germany, uh, which uh, sidelines Ukraine in ways that Ukraine has been screaming about for the better part of half a decade now that would be seriously detrimental to its sovereignty. Uh, so the administration has leaned into the sanction idea and it's continuing to lean into it, even though we've known from the literature on sanctions for the better part of 30 years now, uh, when I, I remember reading about this in the 1990s, that economic sanctions do not change the behavior of rogue regimes. They've never demonstrated a capacity to force them to really alter their behavior. You can circumscribe some of the things that they would like to do via economic sanctions, but you will not change their ultimate geopolitical interests or the grand strategy they use to achieve those, to, to secure those gains. And we're coming up against that in Ukraine. And if they were to execute some sort of another very aggressive uh, move in, into Ukraine, um, what would it say about the Biden administration's approach to, for example, Afghanistan, to, for example, Taiwan? Um, all of this would suggest that the people like us who are screaming about how authoritarian states are emboldened and see a window of opportunity that they need to make, take advantage of now rather than wait for conditions to get worse. Uh, it would demonstrate that we were all right to, to a, hor a horrific extent because it won't stop with Ukraine. And I don't know where they intend to go. If, if they intended to go, would they stop at uh, Mariupol? Would they stop at Odessa? Would they stop at Kiev? We don't know. And the, the, the reaction from European capitals is the X factor there. Would they accept that sort of thing? The conventional wisdom is yes, because they're all quislings and cowards. But what if they don't? What if Germany doesn't but, accept that? But it will. But what if they don't? But, but <laughs> How, well, would that, what would that look like? And it's not hard to envision what well, that, that might would be look interesting. Like. Yes. But as Abe said, this is part of what Abe said is that is that the Biden administration is like hoping against hope that somehow it's going to remain focused. It's going to have these two problems that it knows about, which is sort of like difficulties with the economy and inflation and 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 covid's refusal to let us loose. And that those taken in isolation will improve over the next year, irrespective of other conditions, and therefore will kind of stanch the bleeding uh, at, at the very least and, and make sure that, uh, that, that they don't face a world of pain uh, next November. But uh, the world intrudes and the world will have its way with us, particularly as, as you say, Noah, uh, a lot of this is probably the result of uh, hunger uh, to test the Biden administration's bizarre commitment to a kind of isolationism that, uh, you know, says Americans are not going to get themselves involved in foreign conflicts anymore and therefore leaving 
the possibility open to bad actors to say, well, we're going to take them at their word. This is what I'm truly struck by. And I, I don't I don't perceive there to be any any appetite for an, a, a competent alternative on the right for this kind of idea. Sanctions don't work. Talk shops don't work. The way you deter adversaries who are irredentist is to deter them militarily with threats that they cannot absorb, the threat of, of response that they cannot absorb. That's what works. And the Biden administration isn't interested in that. But neither is the American right. There's no appetite for going to war with Russia over Ukraine. What American interests are advanced by that? And I don't, I don't know if that's a, a bad argument on the, on the merits insofar as what American interests are at stake in Europe. You have to actually uh, talk through the consequences of sacrificing an American partner in Kiev like that. And, and that requires some explanation. However, what is their alternative for deterring a Russian attack here? How would they go about doing it? I don't think I've heard anything even approaching a response that would satisfy an inquisitive mind as to what, what the alternative policy would be there. There is no alternative policy. It's just, well, you know, that's not our fight, even and though it will way, be and not in very short order. So uh, let's say Putin aggresses dramatically. Uh, just to bring this back to our earlier conversation, um, there goes one of the sort of foundational pieces of the anti-Trump uh, scare, right? Uh, you, want, you want a guy who, who, who's going to let Putin take over the world back in office? Right. Good luck making that argument. And, you know, then the, and they'll have the clips of, you know, Biden talking about how he met with Putin, told him uh, what 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 sort of cyber attacks the U.S. would would stand for. And here's a list of the ones we wouldn't. You know, that was a very limp meeting. Listen, so, Biden, you know, as we're rewarding. speaking, as we're speaking, Biden is supposed to have some kind of a phone call session zoom session or something uh with president g tonight from china right and uh in order to somehow send some message of some sort to china and yeah i mean there is a real question as to what as to look when you're when you're the world's leading power you're like a huge superpower and the whole point is that people are afraid of you they're afraid of you and you don't your the fear isn't just that you're gonna like bomb them or you're going to invade them or something like that. It's that you have a multiplicity of tools to make their lives, their existences and what they want much more difficult and painful to achieve. That is what power, authority, influence and economic strength provide you because it's not just will send a bomber and blow up your bridge it's that yeah if the sanctions don't work don't worry like you know that bank that you have well we're gonna sh we'll shut it down we'll yeah, shut down the bank where you're you have 20 billion dollars hiding and you're you know your your agent over here who's doing x y and z we're gonna send him home or arrest him or we, there are all kinds of things you can do but if you signal that you are taking your biggest assets off the table you are signaling that your stomach for conflict and confrontation is weak and therefore uh you know the consequences of engaging you don't just have to be that there's going to be a nuclear war 
But if you're not in an ultimate sense, which was the whole point of, you know, our nuclear doctrine, and the, if you're not willing to engage in the possibility of it, then you ratchet down to what level are you willing to engage? And if the only level is like, yeah, sanctions, then Putin's like, well, you're not going to hurt me. I don't care. No, the Kremlin has has demonstrated uh, people around Putin have been sanctioned you know, directly. And, and the Kremlin has demonstrated a willingness to absorb sanctions, visa restrictions, travel restrictions. They can they can eat that. Uh, and Abe reminds me that last time Moscow did this, I think around April, where they had a lot of troops on the Ukrainian border and everybody got real scared. What what was Joe Biden's response? He gave Vladimir Putin a bilateral summit with the president, literally reward for brinksmanship and saber rattling. Why wouldn't you expect more of the same? Well, well, maybe we'll get some readout on that G phone call tonight. We can talk about it tomorrow. But until then, you're going to have to get along without us. So for Abe, Christina, Noam, John Podhoritz, keep the candle burning. <laughs>